I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Gary Trust here in New York, and really excited uh, for this week's guests. Um, they, they, I think they're going to appreciate this. They they study trends. I think I think you guys will like this trend. You're the first repeat guests ever on the podcast. How's that for a trend? It's awesome. Great to be here, Gary. Absolutely. Um, Dave Penn. Yep. Yael Penn. Yes. Of hit songs deconstructed. You guys uh, were on the podcast back in April, I think, and it was just a complete class on songwriting trends. I feel like I learned so much the first time you guys were here. We loved it's it. It's yeah. great to be back. So welcome back. We're going to talk about uh, more trends that you guys are studying yeah. constantly through a hit songs deconstructed, and we are going to deconstruct as well. While we're here. You guys are. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen and learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so we'll talk about uh, the chain smokers. Don't let me down. Making trainers know, and a classic too. That uh, bittersweet reasons obviously came back this year as a hit again. Prince's When Doves Cry. Yeah. All right. So let's get into uh, for anyone who maybe didn't hear uh, the first podcast with you guys. Just remind everyone what a hit songs deconstructed is, and, and really what an interesting uh, tool it is for music fans and, and people in the business. Okay, great, absolutely. So, Hit Songs Deconstructed provides the music industry with data and analysis on the current state of the mainstream music scene, but at the compositional level. So, we track the compositional characteristics and production techniques in the songs that land in the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100. So, one thing that's important to note um, is that each song that we deconstruct it's meticulously deconstructed by a hit songs deconstructed analyst. We do not use computer generated algorithms. We do it the old fashioned way by listening. Right. We we talked about that last time. Yeah. You guys have a room or, or rooms full of uh, people. Lots of listening. Lots of listening. Lots of listening. <laughs> headphones, right? Lots of headphones. headphones. Lots of headphones. Yeah. Lots of listening. Yes. Um, so, uh, because of all of that listening and the in-depth deconstructions, um, we are able to offer in-depth reports, which you're very familiar with, um, which take a deep dive into the latest hit songwriting and production techniques, characteristics, and trends through a combination of data and in-depth analysis. 
so we're also very excited to announce the launch of our immersion searchable database, right. which contains yeah. data on all of the songs that land in the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100 going back several years. It offers over 200 searchable criteria enabling highly customizable searches based on the compositional characteristics, production techniques, and so much more. <laughs> Plus, every song that's housed in the database includes a one-page deconstruction which details key compositional characteristics. Yeah, this is what's you know, got you guys on our radar, radar here at, at Billboard is you know, we're always studying trends of the music business, you know, sales, mm -hmm. you know, different kinds, but this is really the only uh, tool we've seen that studies actual the actual music itself on, on such a deep level, and that's, that's why you guys seem so interesting to us here at Billboard. Yeah, it's understanding the what, the how, and the why behind what makes these hits so successful. All right, so immersion is so, the, new, yes. the new part of, of what you guys do. Yes, so um, so it's a searchable database. Um, it's extremely robust, and um, not only is it a huge time saver for anybody who needs to look up anything related to songs on the compositional level or um, looking up production techniques, but it's, it's, it's also a great discovery tool. So, uh, for example, one interesting trend um, that we pulled from our immersion database is the increase in prominence of male-female duets among the top ten. It's, it's a trend that's been occurring for several years. Um, so in 2014, 12% of the songs that landed in the top ten of the Billboard Hot 100 were male-female duets. In 2015, it went up to 15%. And so far this year, it's already up to 19%. Ah. However, what's even more interesting is the fact that from the six new songs that entered the top 10 for the first time this year and reached number one, which is Panda, Work, Pillow Talk, One Dance, Can't Stop the Feeling, and Cheap Thrills, three of those were male-female duets. So that's 50% of those songs. Now, these three songs also possess a dancehall subgenre influence, which is another trend that we are seeing evolve, similar to the same way Trap did. So in 2013, 3% of songs had a trap subgenre influence. Examples are Harlem Shake and Started from the Bottom. In 2014, it went up to 15% of songs. Examples are Dark Horse and Turn Down for What? In 2015, it went up to 27%. Examples are Trap Queen and Bad Blood featuring Kendrick Lamar. And now in 2016, we're seeing it plateau at 26% so far this year. Which is, um, still, which is still, still a lot. A lot higher, yeah, right? absolutely. It just hasn't gone up yet from right. 2015. Um, it's just the same. Um, and some examples are Same Old Love and Panda. So we're seeing a similar progression for dance hall subgenre influence, um, along with reggae and tropical, all of which are very closely related. So in 2014, uh, the, trend, the trend began with 3% of songs. Um, examples are Am I Wrong and Rude. In 2015, it went up to 9% of songs. Examples are Cheerleader and What Do You Mean? And so far this year, it's up to 17% of songs. And examples are Work and One Dance and Cheap Thrills, all of which are number one hits. Right. 
So when you look at the six new songs that entered the top ten for the first time in 2016 and reached number one, 50% are male-female duets. The other 50% are solo male. 50% were released by RCA. Two-thirds of the songs include a post-chorus, and 50% of them have a dance hall subgenre influence. And that dance hall influence is just perfectly primed for the summer. Right. So it's got that really infectious groove. It's kind of cool, mellow kind of vibe, tropical. It's just perfectly uh, primed for a hit of the summer. The whole Bieber comeback has really been based yeah, on a lot of that. Very stuff. tropical. You know, especially you know, what do you mean? I mean, that was, we did a deconstruction of that song. Right. Um, really infectious groove that just really delivered it and delivered in a very unique manner as well, which was great. And it, yeah. it was seen maybe uh, by some people as a little bit of a risk when Rihanna came back with work. Because mm-hmm. on first listen, that was like, that's not a very mainstream sounding pop no, song. No, very different than her previous works. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we like puns. But, um, you know, she, you know, it certainly seemed less commercial than her other stuff. But, uh, you know, that groove and the repetition of work, 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 work. Right. I mean, it's just such an infectious song that you can't get out of your head. Coupled with the Rihanna hit factor. I mean, she's just so... Uh, popular, you know, right. can't go wrong. But it was great to see her really pushing the boundaries of what she's done before. And uh, Drake, obviously, Drake. A part of well, uh, both of these, on fire. these yeah. huge number ones. Yeah, bring bring that sound. Oh, absolutely. Well, one dance. I mean, have, have you determined your uh, number one hit of the summer yet? Or he, s- I would imagine he's in very close contention or the contention. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been uh, one dance has been number one um, since the beginning yep. of the summer. Yep. So it's it's a running tally. So every week it just sort of keeps adding to its lead. Yeah. Um, the one song that's really jumped up the highest since, although it, it, it may be tough for it to knock one dance off, is Cheap Thrills. Yeah, which also has that whole dancehall right. tropical kind of vibe as well. And that so, was actually yeah. uh, originally intended to be recorded by Rihanna. Absolutely. So yeah. it's, it's a Sia so song. So it's all tied it, together. Yeah, it's almost like another Rihanna song. It's, well, almost it's great to work. see Sia, you know, at the top of the charts, you know, who's been the secret weapon behind, you know, many hits. Right. So uh, she's doing really well. It's great to see. And it's interesting, too, you mentioned uh, RCA as three of the six uh, new, newly released number ones mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this year. And, and they're sort of all coming from, from different places. The Sia mm-hmm. is on that uh, reggae tropical vibe. Um, you've got the Zane song, Pillow Talk, which right. yep. is, is your boy band ballad. And then <laughs> yep. uh, Justin Timberlake. We had uh, Joe Riccatelli from RCA on the podcast right, a few sure. months ago. Uh-huh. And he, he was saying how... Some of the songs uh, Timberlake has released, especially since 2013, they've been a little more R&B. Uh, they've kind of had some it's different sounds. Michael Jackson influence. The Michael Jackson Very influence. Big Michael Jackson influence. Uh, in that disco vibe going. Right. Know. Apparently yeah. when, when Justin uh, was talking to Joe after uh, he'd played him... Uh, can't stop the feeling. He said, "This is finally. I'm just giving you a straight pop song. This is the easiest <laughs> song you'll, you'll ever have to promote. I wanted to make it easy for you on this one. Well, certainly did. Yep. <laughs> wow. So, so just you know, in a few minutes, here you guys have kind of broken down trends of hit music in the last three years and how we've come to this point right now in 2016. A lot of interesting stuff when yeah. you look into it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what uh, for anyone that really uh, inter- who, who is really your um, your target uh, client f- 
for for what hit songs deconstructed is is it just the music fan listening now like me who thinks wow that's really interesting but it's it's obviously people crafting this music and working on yeah, it in well, different, it, different ways primarily i would say it's for people very serious about um you know making a career in the music industry uh we have anywhere from hit songwriters who subscribe to novice songwriters who are really serious about developing their craft producers engineers a lot of A&Rs because they want to stay on top of what's happening where their eyes and ears for what's going on a lot of times. They don't have a lot of time to really, you know, peek out and see what's going everywhere. So we report on all the compositional characteristics in addition to the sales, which you report on in the streams and, you know, what makes them successful like that. Um, but uh, there's just so much to learn from this. So there's really something in it for everybody, but it's really the serious music professional who wants to make a career in the industry because you get a need to be in tune with the current trends and you need to understand what makes these songs so successful so you get all these techniques and characteristics ingrained in your head so it becomes intuitive of how you're going to craft a song for maximum impact and that's the key commonality that most hit songwriters share if you look like a max martin or a shellback or benny and all these other people um, they're masters at their craft because they work at it right you know it's a lot of hard work but you know what? If music's in your blood and this is what you love doing, it doesn't seem like work. Right. It's fun. Like, we love what we do. Um, it's just, you know, because I'm a songwriter as well, you know, and produce. So it's really, you know, you're learning something new every single day. Every single time a new song lands in the Hot 100 Top 10, there's something new to discover. And that's what's fantastic about it. And it's not only for songwriting decisions. I mean, I think yeah. that it's also for business decisions. Um, you know, uh, a label may use um, hit songs deconstructed to think about which single maybe they should be releasing at a specific um, time. At right. a specific yeah. time, right. you know. So um, it's it's not just about the songwriting; it's also about the business, and that's why it's really for any music industry professional. Well, I, I think it really all just comes down to um, you know, as you was saying, it's decision making. It's songwriting decision-making, it's producing decision-making, engineering, a and Whatever you're doing in today's music industry, you're making decisions. And this is another tool to really help you um, make informed decisions about what to do. Is it sort of amazing that this type of tool didn't exist previously? Well, if you think about it, it has existed for everything else other than looking at the actual song. Right. And so it, the tool, as the concept of the tool, exists in every industry, including the yeah. music industry, when you're looking at, you know, other things like sales, et cetera. Um, but what didn't exist was the, the, you know, looking at the actual song mm -hmm. the same way as you look at all of the other things. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why Hit Songs Deconstructed really complements all of the other tools that are out there right now. Yeah, I mean... Let's not forget, it all starts and ends with a song. Right. And I think a lot of people might have forgotten about that. You know, you have, uh, you know, it's all about marketing your song and great site design and networking and, and great plugins and DAWs and video. sound libraries <laughs> and all this stuff. But it doesn't mean anything unless you have the song. So start with the song and everything else can be determined afterwards. And that's why we just focus strictly on the song. You guys are the sabermetricians of music. It's uh, the way sports analysis has totally transformed. That's what you guys are doing with music. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, there's just so much to discover. It's just, uh, 
you know, like I said, every week learning something new. So, and then we just, you know, we do the work for people and then we convey it to them what we're finding with the trends, with the techniques. And the more you know, the more effective you are. That brings me to one of the questions, uh, some of the feedback I got from the first time you guys were on, Mm -hmm. is how much of songwriting is actively uh, thinking I need to uh, employ some of these types of uh, songwriting uh, elements and how much of it is just inspiration and maybe is it a combination the more you have hit songs and this is your your craft it becomes more intuitive mm-hmm. yeah it I always say it's 50 50 yeah you know you need that inspiration because if you don't have the inspiration you have nothing to craft but after you develop that hook and you know that hook hits you or so you know the lyric hits you the title whatever it is what next what do you do where do you go with it and the more you study the hits, the more you, you know you learn about the techniques and the characteristics. It becomes intuitive of like it's it's a toolbox of where are we going to go with this? So who is my target audience? Who is the artist that might be pitching this towards? Um, does you know what genre should it be in? Should it be dance, electronic, hip hop, a synthesis of the two? How do I fuse subgenres? There's so many decisions that need to be made, and it's not necessarily sitting down and saying. You know, doing a calculation of well, this percent of that percent—it's right. not that. It's as, and this is what I think our subscribers have in common: is when they read these reports and they really absorb what's going on. Like you just said, it becomes intuitive right. of what to do. So you get that inspiration, you get that hook, you get something, and then you mold it into what it is. But it needs to be an informed decision. Otherwise, it's just a hobby, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You know, there are millions of hobbyist musicians all over the place. But if you want to be a, a contender in the mainstream music scene and you want to write hits, they have certain qualities, and that's what we report on. And um, one thing that's it, that's I think interesting is how um, the reports and immersion complement each other mm. because the reports they're a learning tool. Right, um, so much that they're being used in in universities such as Berklee College of Music. Ah. Um, so they're a real learning tool where you can uh, study one song over the course of a long time because they're so in depth. Or you can review our trend report, or our genre report, or our top ten deconstructed, which focuses more on the techniques, um, and then immersion is more of a research tool and a discovery tool. So you're not studying, you're actually researching. So, um, you know, it can be used in so many different ways. So, for example, let's say, you know, you're, you need to compose for, for an ad, you know, um, and the agency says, all right, here's a track, I want it to sound similar to this. You can look that up, and then you can see every single characteristic about it, and you can drill down and find every other song that has each of those characteristics and just get inspiration and an understanding of how you can compose something that's going to sound similar, but yet there won't be any copyright infringement. And and, and that's a great point that you brought up of where hit songs deconstructed can be used for sound-alikes, you know, molding a song in the vein of something. And a lot of people since the beginning... You know, one of the uh, reservations that people initially have is that you're just having everybody sound cookie cutter. Right. It's the same techniques, and it's anything but. You know, they have to deliver the unique inspiration themselves. We we can't teach unique inspiration, but we could teach how to channel that unique inspiration in the most effective manner possible. 
But when you really get into the top 10 of the Hot 100, it's anything but cookie cutter. I mean, there's a lot of unique qualities. And when you study the hits, you really find out that there's a unique spin, which is equally as important as the core craft itself. And one of the things we'll we'll get into as we uh, analyze the three songs so mm-hmm. we talked about is how so many pop hits nowadays are really complex. I mean, I know pop music is meant to be something you can, the more mass appeal it is, the easier it is to process yep. in, in your ears and in your brain. But there's a lot going on in a lot of pop hits lately. But that's that's the brilliance of the whole thing. When right. you dig down deep, you see how meticulously and, and, and uh, well-crafted they are and how complex they really are. But the true brilliance is making them come across in a very simplistic, easy-to-digest manner so they connect with the widest possible audience, blending a combination of familiarity and originality. And that's the real uh, brilliance of what it, you know these hits embrace. I know you uh, started Hit Songs Deconstructed. Uh, Dave, you were a songwriter, you said last time. Have, have, yeah. you, have you learned more in your... Do you, do you still have time? Did I, last time you said you didn't no. have time to do it. <laughs> it's funny how it all, funny how it all works this, right? You never know what direction you're going to go in life. Right. Um, no, but... Um, you know, in the future, definitely looking back to get into songwriting and producing, and I've learned so much from doing this along, you know, with our staff. And um, you know, I'm just really looking forward to you know getting back into that home realm. I, I miss it, <laughs> but there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I think you said you, you learned piano when you were very young. Yes, yes. I haven't had time to to get back. Have piano you? and cello were my instruments. Um, cello, I do not play anymore. <laughs> There's no but room in an apartment. So, yeah. We do have a piano, though, so um, I do play the piano whenever I have some time. Have you been asked to speak at any schools, or is that something in your future that you won't yeah, have, have time for? But We've have spoken. Yeah. Uh, we've done a couple of presentations at Berkeley. At Berkeley. Yeah. Um, uh, SAE we've done, and um, you know, we're talking to some other schools now that want us to talk. So, yeah, it's, it's been uh, really exciting. Really exciting. Yeah, so speaking engagements will come up soon. We just needed we to launch a, this yeah. database first. <laughs> yeah. And we also have a lot of workshops planned as well, oh, which yeah. is going to be great. We've done workshops in the past, and that's when we can really just do a deep dive into all these different techniques and um, really take uh, the audience A to Z of what makes a hit song a hit and how they could apply it to themselves while staying true to their own unique right. uh, characteristics. So, um, so yeah, those we're excited. will be coming up in the fall. Yes. So. Yep. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Great. I don't know when you guys will have time for that, but apparently, <laughs> I don't know either. apparently you'll, 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 you'll make time. We will see. We will make it happen. <laughs> well, I remember last time you were here, uh, you analyzed uh, Selena Gomez, Samuel Love, yeah. Drake, Hotline Bling, yeah. and it just became a masterclass in how these songs, why, what drew people into them, because mm-hmm. uh, you really uh, drilled down into where the actual hooks were and, and, and the thinking behind them. Yeah. So, uh, and then Adele, well, that we concluded with very Adele. briefly, and right. how that song didn't need all the bells and whistles. It didn't need all these interesting twists and turns because it was just Adele's vocal that really, and the evocative characteristics of the song that really put it over the top. Right. So it's it's really, you know, it's knowing when to employ certain characteristics and when not to employ. That's the bottom line. And then <laughs> the three songs today are, yeah. are, are much more complex then hello that we're going to talk yes. about and at yes. this point Dave I'm just going to really turn it over to you you're, you're the professor so kick us off get us into th- three of these uh, big hits one one of them was a hit in the 80s and, and came back this year so whichever one you want to start with Dave you, sure. you, you start teaching we'll listen <laughs> <laughs> absolutely 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So there are three key criteria that we look for when selecting a song for deconstruction. It has to be a song that recently charted in the top 10 of the Hot 100. There needs to be a wealth of hit songwriting and production characteristics and techniques from which to learn. And whenever possible, it needs to be different than our other deconstructions in order to provide a good cross-section of hits. We're always looking for new, innovative songs to focus on. And all three of our most recent deconstructions meet these criteria. Prince's When Doves Cry, Megan Trainor's No, and The Chainsmokers' Don't Let Me Down. So let's do a brief overview of each, and then we'll get into some of the specifics that makes them so strong. So let's start with When Doves Cry. And this song briefly re-entered the top ten for the first time since 1984, right. I believe, yep. following Prince's untimely passing. Um, very tragic. Um, and I think it was also a number one Hot 100 hit back in the day. It was in- number one for five weeks wow. in 1984. came back into the top ten. Um, yeah. it, was, it was big on our R&B charts, on our rock charts, showing... I'm sure this is what cross genre pollination. <laughs> Prince, Prince is kind of his own category. Yeah, very hard to pigeonhole Prince into a specific genre. Right. Um, so it was the first time that I heard "When Doves Cry" in a very long time, and as I was listening to it, not only did I reconnect with the song and realize, you know, remember how much I loved it, but I also realized through a few lessons that there was just so much to learn from this song, and you know, Prince being the master craftsman that he was. So since it met hit songs deconstructed criteria for what is you know can be classified as deconstruction, it was current again. So it was a no-brainer to feature it. I'm so glad that we did. Um, what a lot of people might not know is that not only did Prince write the song himself, but he also played all the instruments himself, which is quite a rarity when you think about it. You don't really see that too often. And it was written for a specific scene in the Purple Rain movie. Um, but one of its real core strengths is that it was very much in tune with the sounds and the trends of the day, which gave it mass appeal. But it also possessed very unique qualities, which can be aptly described as like the Prince Factor, um, that enabled it to stand out amongst its contemporaries. And it's this effective blending of familiarity and originality that's a hallmark of many hits, both yesterday and today. So basically a key point for hits is having an element that sounds like a hit, but also applying your own uniqueness and talents. To Absolutely. Make a you want to time. very easily connect with an audience, but it needs a unique spin so it stands out. And that's a characteristic that many of the songs that we find charting in the you know Hot 100 Top 10 today certainly possess. Right. 
Um, the next song is Megan Trainers Know, which was the lead single from her most recent album entitled Thank You. And it was written by Megan Trainer, Ricky Reed, and Jacob Kasher. And interestingly, um, it was a result of the label's insistence that the album needed a single, and what Trainer delivered so far didn't fit the bill. So here's a case where going back to the drawing board really yielded great results. But one of you know that song's real strengths is that it both connects with Trainer's all about that bass core fan base, you know, who love her for that retro '60s soul doo-wop vibe, and charts new territory as well with the late '90s, early 2000s pop, dance, and R&B influences. I love Britney Spears and Sync and in, uh, Destiny's Child. But equally as important, it contains a really strong hook at its core, which is the na to the ah to the no, no, no hook, which is reinforced in every stanza of every section except for the pre-chorus. Pre-chorus just provides that build into the chorus, which culminates with na to the ah to the no, no, no. Um, but it's really a meticulously well-structured song with so much to learn from. And the final song is Don't Let Me Down, which is a very successful recent single from the Chainsmokers and features evocative vocals from, do you pronounce it Daya or Daya? Daya. I've heard it. It is Daya. Okay. I, I taught hip songs I've, deconstructed I've heard it both something. ways. <laughs> I don't analyze names yet. So. <laughs> um, and she's just 17 years old. Right. So she's off to a really good start in her career. Great voice. Um, so in contrast to When Doves Cry, and No, for that matter, it's very much in tune with the sounds of the day. It features an engaging blend of electropop, EDM, and trap influences. And, um, but it also features non-typical influence as well. For example, like the alternative influence, which is um, put in, into effect by the qualities of the electric guitar. And this is a characteristic that really helps it stand out, especially in the dance club electronic genre, somewhat of an atypical characteristic. But like the other songs, it's meticulously well-crafted, you know, contains multiple instrumental and vocal hooks, and engaging energy level variations, an effective intro, universal lyrics, to name a few of many. Yeah, we've been talking at Billboard, Dave, how this year, uh, the two, uh, the only two so far um, multi-member acts, duos or groups this year, with at least three Hot 100 top tens this mm-hmm. year, uh, are The Chainsmokers yeah. and 21 Pilots. Which you know maybe a year ago people wouldn't have seen that coming from either act, but I, I think there's probably a, a, a similarity there in that you're just saying how the Chainsmokers you think of them as dance pop, but you're talking about electric guitars and similarly twenty very pilots. center qualities. You know, very interesting blend of right. different subgenres that give the song a very unique sound while remaining familiar. That's a perfect example. It, it's you know, where. You know, that unique spin and familiarity. And same for 21 Pilots, where they're mixing uh, rock and, and some rap elements. Absolutely. So a lot of blending. Yeah. But you get that cross-genre pollination that's not only great for the song, but it's also great for the sales potential as well. Because right. that's the bottom line for the labels, and also the artist wants to make money. So you get into all these different genres, and you reach a wider audience, which ultimately uh, makes the song more successful. It could go wrong, right, in that you could just throw so much into a song that it's just one big that's, mess. That's where craft comes into play, yeah. knowing how much, how to balance it, does it sound right. And the more you listen to hits and you see how they're structured, you realize, am I leaning too much in one direction? But again, it becomes intuitive the more that you do it. But you're 100% right. right. You know, If you're too over the place and it just becomes this massive collage of stuff, you know, then it might not connect with anybody. I feel so. like a lot of pop songs have uh, 
added more hooks to them. It maybe goes back to when I really, I think, noticed it was on Bastille's Pompeii. Yeah, there's sure. like seven different hooks in that song. Oh yeah, it just seems like that's a new model for writing hits. Well, just different put vocal in, hooks in put that in a song lot of and hooks everything. In there. Absolutely. Well, and that's one of the things that we're actually going to talk about today with post choruses. So, um, so today we're going to look at two compositional characteristics, which are you know key components in many of the songs that land within the Hot 100 Top 10, and we're going to be using our three most recent de- deconstructions as examples. The first is clever and effective intros, and the second is post-chorus payoffs. Okay. More hooks. Right. (laughs) So let's start with intros, though. Um, So the manner in which a song begins is of the utmost importance. You know, the listener needs to be hooked in as quickly as possible, and their attention needs to be held until the next uh, section takes over, which is typically the verse or the chorus. So for this reason, the rule of thumb is to keep an intro as short as possible. You know, hook the listener in ASAP and just get on with it. Right. Um, and the average intro length of a top 10 hit during the last four quarters was just 12 seconds, with over 90% landing at 19 seconds or less. And Don't Let Me Down's intro lands right at the average, it's 12 seconds. However, there were exceptions, and there always are. And No and When Doves Cry are two of the most notable. But as you'll see, despite their long length, they're exceptionally effective. And as the saying goes, you need to know the rules to break the rules, and that's where effective songcraft again comes into play. So let's start with Don't Let Me Down. As I mentioned, its intro is 12 seconds long, which is in line with the average. Um, And there are a couple of qualities that really make it very effective. It establishes one of the song's two primary instrumental hooks, which is that electric guitar pattern. And it establishes uh, two of the song's subgenres, alternative through the qualities of the electric guitar, and also electropop through the synths and affected drums. So it's the electric guitar, though, that's really the standout instrument in the mix. And it's an instrument that you don't hear being used that often in the intro of a top 10 hit, especially, again, in the dance club electronic genre. It's usually synth-dominated. But what's really interesting is that the electric guitar and corresponding hook and alternative influence that it puts into effect is actually removed from the entire second half of the song. Instead, trap, electropop, and dance play the dominant role. And this is something that you also don't see too often in a hit, where a major memorable component of a song is completely removed. But it certainly you know, didn't mitigate the effectiveness of the song. Right. So the next one is Megan Trainor's No. And No's intro is double the length of the average, landing at 24 seconds, which is pretty lengthy by mainstream standards. But it features a really clever, evolving two-part structure, both of which possess a distinct characteristic. As a result, the listener is easily kept engaged despite its relatively long length. So the first seven bars of No's intro essentially pick up where Trainer left off with her two previous hits, Lips Are Moving, and especially All About That Bass, both of which possess a 1960s retro soul doo-up quality. So this instantly attracts and engages her core audience, who love her for that particular vibe due to the uh, familiarity imparted, and the listener is also inclined to think at this point that No will be in the same style as her other hits. But as we know, that's anything but the case. There's a big surprise to come. I think it's so cute And I think it's so sweet How you let your friends encourage you To try and talk to me 
Now in bar eight, everything changes. So following a prolonged transitional lull, which creates a high degree of tension and anticipation for what comes next, the intro abruptly and unexpectedly shifts into late 90s, early 2000s pop and R&B mode through the qualities of the song-defining nod to the odd to the no-no-no vocal hook. So it's the effective combination of the 1960s retro soul doo-wop and late 90s, early 2000s electropop dance and R&B influences that cleverly embraces Trainer's past and signals a new, more contemporary direction for the artist. And it also introduces the song's primary nod to the uh, to the no-no-no vocal hook. So again, while relatively lengthy, the intro achieves a lot and easily keeps the listener engaged until the ensuing chorus seals the deal. And now we get to the intro of intros, When Doves Cry. And its intro is triple the length of the average, landing at a very lengthy 33 seconds. Yeah. But Prince, being the eclectic master craftsman that he was, uh, structured it in an exceptionally infectious, engaging, and memorable manner. It features an evolving four-part structure, each of which possesses a distinct characteristic and seamlessly flows from one into the other. So part one. Part one is just three seconds long and is one of the most recognizable parts of the entire song. So that shredding electric guitar, as brief as it is, functions as a really strong, unique identifier for the song. The second you hear it, there's no mistaking one dove's cry for something else. And also, similar to Don't Let Me Down and No, it functions in the matter of uh, like a genre fake-out. You think the song is going to head in one particular direction, in this case hard rock, but it turns out to be anything but. And interestingly, after the intro, the guitar and hard rock vibe play absolutely no role in the song. So next segment is part two, and part two clocks in at 10 seconds. It features continued guitar shredding from part one, and also puts the song into motion by introducing the core of the infectious drum hook that remains in effect throughout the entire song. So while the guitar shredding keeps the hard rock vibe that was established in part one in play, the electronic and flange-affected drums introduce a funky pop groove element into the mix. Now part three that follows is half the length of part two, clocking in just five seconds. So with the drums from part two remaining in effect, Prince's shredding shifts to raw, abrasive strumming, coupled with the addition of the equally abrasive and repetitive vocal effect, which takes center stage in the mix. So as a result, the hard rock vibe of the song is diminished, the left of center pop funk vibe remains in effect, and a new avant-garde twist is introduced. So at this point, there's really no indication of where the song is going to head next. And now we get to part four, which is the last segment of the intro and also the longest, and with good reason. Clocking at 15 seconds, it introduces the listener to the song's primary instrumental hook. So this synth hook, along with the characteristics of the drums, shifts the vibe from grooving avant-garde to full-on electropop dance mode. So now looking back, 
the listener was taken on a really engaging ride through four distinct genres, which cleverly progresses from heavy to light. Shredding guitar hard rock to hard rock with a pop-funk groove to pop-funk groove with an avant-garde twist, and finally, electropop dance coupled with the song's primary instrumental hook. That's how Prince, that's why Prince is such a master craftsman. You know, left of center, familiar, engaging, solid intro at 33 seconds, which is totally atypical. So. I, I just love how it took about five minutes to go over 33 <laughs> seconds of music because that's how it deep could have been longer. Felt. There's a lot. <laughs> but no, that's a great point, too, just yeah. how many sounds Prince was mixing and how it really ties into today's music, which is a lot of these hits are doing the same thing. Absolutely. And, you know, what's really interesting, though, is that almost 30 years later, there was another mega hit that featured essentially the same atypical intro structure as When Doves Cry, and that was Macklemore and Lewis's Thrift Shop, which was released back in 2012. Um, so while at face value, one might think that they don't have anything in common, but when you look under the hood, you see that there are distinct structural similarities, which enable them to remain very effective despite their long length, both at 33 seconds long and possess an evolving four-part structure. Right. So... Part one of Thrift Shop's intro. Just like When Doves Cry, three seconds long, and features a one-time-only unique identifier element. Instead of the shredding electric guitar riff, here we have a vocal from a child. Hey, Macklemore, can we go thrift shopping? Not only does it possess a unique quality, but it also plugs the artist and the song title as well, so it's very clever. Part two, just like When Doves Cry, the second segment is right around 10 seconds long, and introduces the drum groove that puts the song into motion. The other new element introduced is the repetitive what what vocal. What 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 Now although part three is longer than part three in One Dove's Cry, clocking at ten seconds as opposed to five, it features a similar overall characteristic. So with the drum groove of the preceding segment remaining in effect, a new vocal is introduced into the mix, which has a repetitive, nonsense, left-of-center quality. And this provides the section with another infectious, engaging characteristic similar to the abrasive, avant-garde vocal that enters during part three of When Doves Cry. What, 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 now, part four, although shorter than part four and When Doves Cry, has the same overall function. So the vocal from part three remaining in effect, the drum groove kicks into high gear, coupled with the introduction of the sax, which delivers the song's primary instrumental hook, just as the synth pattern does um, in When Doves Cry. And to further seal the deal with the listener, the song then heads into the chorus. Oh! So when Doves Cry and Thrift Shop both feature intros that are atypical of most mainstream hits, especially due to their length, but the similar effective manner in which they're structured really help to prime each for success 30 years apart. Right. So it's interesting, too, when you talk about long intros. Like, I come from radio background. Mm. I know there's there have been songs in recent years where they've even been released, and then radio stations have gone back to a label saying, we don't want this long intro. We want to start right with the hook, and songs have been re-edited to mm -hmm. start with the hook so that short attention span for listeners, yep. they can just get right into it. Songs like that would seem to suggest that 
they're so strong just on what they are that they don't need that intro being cut out. People no, want to hear that. It, it, it's all the manner in which you structure it. Right. So you can go against the norm. You can have a 33-second intro. It's not recommended, but if you do, there are certain ways to structure it so that the listener is kept engaged so that there's no chance of them tuning out. Because a lot of times if you have a, a very repetitive intro that just goes over and over, they might get bored and just switch to something else. Right. They're not going to stick around to hear what the verse or especially the chorus is. So. And you bring up the point, too, of how both When Doves Cry and Thrift Shop have a real build to them. They start with something very simple, mm-hmm. and layers are added. Yeah, yeah, very engaging. So the next thing that we're going to take a look at here is post-chorus payoffs. So first, what is a post-chorus? So in a nutshell, a post-chorus is a section that directly follows the chorus and features a vocal and or instrumental hook at its core. And in 2014 and 2015, just for example, 49% of all Hot 100 Top 10 hits featured a post-chorus in their framework. However, we're only half of the way through 2016, already 60% featured post-chorus in their framework. Recent notable examples include uh, Cake by the Ocean, My House, I Took a Pill in Ibiza, and When Doves Cry and Don't Let Me Down. Now, in some cases, it's actually the post-chorus that functions as the song's primary sectional payoff, meaning that it's arguably the most infectious, engaging, and memorable part of the song, as opposed to the chorus as one would typically expect. And this is the case both with When Doves Cry and Don't Let Me Down. So let's first take a look at When Doves Cry. While the song's chorus features the summation of the narrative, which is the key component of the chorus, there aren't any really standout hooks and Prince's vocal and the accompaniment characteristics remain relatively on par with the preceding verse. Otherwise stated, it's a pretty linear sectional progression, and the chorus isn't really standing out compared to the verse that precedes it. But that's where the instrumental break post-chorus really comes into play. So the last line of the chorus, this is what it sounds like when doves cry, lyrically sets up the post-chorus that follows. It features the infectious synth hook that was initially introduced at the end of the intro at its core, and launches the song back into electropop dance mode. But equally as important is that it also features Prince's melismatic wails, which is his unique interpretation of what it sounds like when doves cry. Um, this provides a section in the song with an exceptionally um, you know, left-of-center spin while also giving Prince the opportunity to really show off his vocal chops. I never even uh, thought that. He's literally, literally saying this, he's really is, this is what it sounds like. This is like. what it sounds like when does so. You have that lyrical lead in, and there's also anticipation from you know the, the taste of the listener got of that hook at the end of the intro. They're waiting for that to come back, and here it is functioning as the primary payoff within the song, not the chorus. So again, Prince, the master eclectic craftsman. Right. Um, now, don't let me down. Um, it's chorus you know, like uh, When Doves Cry, provides the summation of the narrative, but it doesn't function as the song's primary sectional payoff. Instead, the chorus provides an excitement, tension, and anticipation build that reaches an apex at the end of the section, effectively setting up the release into the hook-laden instrumental break post-chorus that follows. So let's pick it up in the second half of the chorus. (laughs) 
So you can hear how the tension, the excitement level really builds to a climax. At the end of the section, the kick drum thins out via an EQ shift, and there's a brief partial accompaniment pull that maximizes the impact of the post-chorus when the sub-bass hits at the onset of the section. So now let's get into the post-chorus. At its core, it features the infectious nasal-sounding synth hook, coupled with two distinct versions of the song title vocal hook, Don't Let Me Down and Don't Let Me Down, Down, Down. And the second one is clever in the sense that it melodically jibes with the connotation of the lyrics, down, 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 due to its descending pitch. Additionally, the post-chorus also provides a pronounced genre and vibe shift, launching the song into a heavy, slow-burning trap-influenced groove that's driven by prominent sub-bass. So as you can see, the post-chorus really takes the impact of both When Doves Cry and Don't Let Me Down to a heightened level by providing the primary payoff, find the summation of the narrative in the chorus. So those are two great examples of really effective post-choruses. And as you said, more hooks. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> that, that's another one of those songs where it, it's always like, what is the hook to Don't Let Me Down? Is it the I need you, I need you, I need you right now? It, there's so many different There are parts. a lot of hooks. And, you know, the song title is repeated many times throughout the song, but it's always conveyed in a uh, unique manner because it's tied into different sub-hooks. Right. So it's just, you know, it's hook maximization. And that's a, and another thing that a lot of hits have in common. It's, you know, and that's like the hallmark of like a Max Martin pen song. You know, it's every section of the song has to be infectious, engaging, and memorable. And the more hits he writes, you know, the 60 or so top 10 hits now uh, in the last 20 years, the mm. more that becomes the structure of what a pop hit is nowadays. And other songwriters are obviously paying attention to that. And yeah, he's certainly a driving force in the industry. Right. Um, yeah, but effective songcraft. But he always puts, you know, unique, different spins on the songs, you know, and also with the teams that he assembles. You know, keep, you know it's, it's all about hit songwriting teams today. It's really not a solo effort. Um, you know, where Prince, solo efforts, you know, a lot of songs have 5, 10, 15, 20 songwriters. It's, it's, uh, I'll bring up uh, 21 Pilots again. They were uh, their three top ten hits now they've had this year. All written by yep. Tyler Joseph. Tyler Joseph. Yep. They really are uh, the outliers at this point in, Absolutely. In, in in songwriting. But again, at the same time, he's writing these complex songs. But it is just one person. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. So another lesson here from from the masters. It's songs <laughs> deconstructed. It just it really is just no one else doing this kind of analysis for songs and breaking down songs literally at such an, an organic level and looking at it ten seconds at a time. And talking about it that way for, for, for minutes and, and, and what went into it. And I guess it really goes back to, Dave, you saying it, it's, it's, it's deep craft and it's making it seem like it's very simple. Absolutely. And it's really, you know, understanding what makes, you know, the familiar work, what makes the unique work, how these all come together in shaping today's hits. So you talk about these three songs in particular, if there are, whether it's labels or songwriters or, or producers, Listening in, in this case specifically, I, I guess one of the big takeaways would be melding of different sounds. There's a lot of rock and mm. dance and pop going on in subgenre in fusion, songs, right? Yeah, we have a whole report dedicated just to subgenres and, and genres. Um, you know, fusing them in a meticulously uh, well mannered you know uh, manner um, to really maximize uh, you know 
cross appeal, but also to you know provide the song with a very unique spin. You know, push the boundaries of what's been done before. Yeah, do you think as as music listeners we're becoming more sophisticated? If you know, it's not just three chords and and, and one simple. There's so many more layers now of music as we get into you know 50 years of of the rock era and beyond. Are we just do we just keep adding more complexity to pop music? I think there are a lot more tools to play with now, a lot more yeah. toys. Right. I think so technology um, has changed everything. I think. You know, but also keep in mind, you know, there, there's always um, the game changers that come around, like when you know Nirvana came around and brought an end to, you know, it didn't seem like there's going to be any end to the hair metal bands with Bon Jovi and Rat, and all, and all of a sudden grunge comes in, three chords, heavy stuff. And you'd never think that would be the most popular thing and totally, you know, turn culture on its head. Right. But it did. So now you could have a lot of toys being employed and a lot of different sounds and layers and genres. And all of a sudden tomorrow, maybe, you know, some kid who's playing around in his bedroom with, you know, different, you know, guitars and everything. And she's like, I don't need any of this stuff. I'm just going to go back to three chord minimalist kind of stuff. And boom, you have a new trend. Right. you, you never know. Sean so. Mendez's uh, Stitches was yeah. just kind of a campfire yeah. acoustic song. Absolutely. For the most part. Um, but a lot of it, yeah. too, exactly goes back to people growing up now with, with laptops. They've learned to create music that way, and there are just fewer uh, genre boundaries than there used to be. People just grow up with, whether it's the iTunes store or YouTube, music is just in one place. You don't have to just listen to one station that plays a certain type of music it's all there right blurred lines I always say is the nice uh, pun easy way to say what music has become but that's kind of what's happened absolutely but you really have to have the song craft to know how to put it all together and that's what hit songwriters have in common they know you know they have the toys they have the tools now what do we do with it and they know how to put it all together so just because you have all the sounds and everything else doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to write a hit so that's why song craft is still so important, despite you know how it's getting you know easier to you know uh, record at home and you know garage band and all these other things, um, you know the craft still prevails. And and all these songs for all all the different elements where we're still talking about the hooks. There's that talent that you either have or you don't have is, is to write the actual melody at all. Yes. The base of all this is is the actual the melody. Melody that, is important, right? And without a great melody, nobody's going to stick around to listen to what your lyrics are. You know, so uh, it's all mel- in, in my opinion, it's all melody based. Got to leave that resonating in your head. <laughs> well, lessons as always. You guys are uh, two for two in just uh, leaving me uh, overwhelmed with, with learning <laughs> things I, I just didn't realize. Where I was listening to when you listen to these songs, you don't think of how much necessarily is in there and the work that that went into it on all these levels. And yeah, you absolutely. guys do this like no one else. Oh, great. Well, it's great being here again, Gary. Absolutely. Yes. We're keep Always having, great to be here. Going to keep having you back on. There, there will continue be to be more top ten hits. Absolutely. Absolutely. For you guys to, to deconstruct. So we'll, we'll stay in tune. <laughs> well, uh, it, uh, uh, Yael, if you want to tell people again, uh, Hit Songs Deconstructed, it's it's more than a website, but that's that's a, a good way to find out more about what you guys yeah, do. Yeah, um, if you want to learn more about Hit Songs Deconstructed, you can go to www.hitsongs.com deconstructed.com and there you can learn about both um, the hit songs deconstructed reports as well as our newly launched immersion searchable database and uh, we hope you'll all check it out 
and maybe at uh, four in the morning when you have time, you'll be uh, speaking at a school somewhere in the future where we can find you there. Maybe playing music again. Actually, recording. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, guys, for coming back on the Chappie Podcast. Thank you for having us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.